0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University, and I'm here today speaking with uh, my good friend as well as uh, just an amazing sports historian, Heather Dichter. Heather Dichter is an associate professor of sports management and sports history at De Montfort University and she's a member of the International Center for Sport History and Culture, and is the editor of just, a, I thought, a great new book, um, and one that I encourage everyone to pick up right away, uh, Soccer Diplomacy, International Relations and Football Since 1914, out from University Press of Kentucky in 2020, which is itself an accomplishment this year. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me, Heather.
1: Oh, thank you so much for, for having me here. And, and I will say, um, we were doing the the page proofs uh, right after, like, as the world locked down. So yes, in some ways, it does seem crazy that we, um, all the contributors and I managed to get a book out in this year.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine some of the wrangling that must have had to happen, <laughs> uh, but we could t- talk about some of that, either for the recording or not. <laughs> Um, I I just want to start out. I, I kind of know some of this, but other people don't. I was wondering, Heather, if you could tell us a bit about how you became interested in sports history, and then we can talk more about the project.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, so I, you know, I think like a lot of people, just always loved sport. Um, and as a history major at the University of Michigan, whenever I had a chance to pick my topic for my essays. Um, I often was drawn to some sort of sport topic within whatever class that was. Um, and I, you know, did my undergraduate honors thesis um, on a sport history topic. And as I was applying to graduate school and I was kind of looking around and searching for, you know, the right programs, um, I realized that you know, sport history was really a thing. And and it was a, a field, it was developed, and, and it was something I could do. Um, and so I... Really, kind of went full force with that, not only being um, a European historian, but also being a sport historian, um, and really made sure that that was um, a central part of my master's thesis, uh, which I did at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, and then absolutely for my PhD at the University of Toronto. And, um, you know, one of the reasons, there were many reasons why I wanted to go to Toronto for my PhD, but one of them was because. Bruce Kidd was there. And, um, you know, just what a, a great, prominent um, sport historian that was somebody I could also learn from and work under was, was great.
0: So this book um, is not your first work on sport, obviously, but it's it's your most recent. And I found it fascinating because it's, for me, part of a kind of broad interest that seems to have emerged very recently in sport and diplomacy, um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you developed this project um, and, and where does it come from and how did you get the contributors? Just talk a little bit about the project itself.
1: Sure. So Soccer Diplomacy um, largely came out of a conversation with an editor at one of the university presses. Um, and you know we were talking about a different project, um, something else. And they kind of looked at it and said, you know, they're really, you should do something more focused, do something, you know, book on soccer and diplomacy. Um, And so kind of with that idea, reached out to a number of scholars, um, some that I knew personally, some whose work I read and admired, others um, kind of did a bit of searching and found individuals for other kind of geographical areas or topics um, to really make this book as as comprehensive about soccer as it could be. Um, You know, obviously the presses do give you a limit on ultimately how many pages and words you get. Um, Can't cover every country in it, um, but wanted to have representation um, or, you know, countries from all the different continents represented. Um, And so kind of reached out to different scholars and asked if they would be interested in being part of this book. Um, And so you know, the response was really positive, and so it, like, like many edited books, uh, took a bit longer to finally come out in print than uh, we had all anticipated. Um, but uh, I was just really happy with everyone who contributed to the book. Um, and I think what was really great was having um, Peter Beck write the conclusion for this book. You know, the idea you mentioned about sport diplomacy, and. Um, you know his 1999 book scoring for britain was really one of the first sport and diplomacy books monographs out there and and it was on soccer football um and and britain in the first half of the 20th century and to have him then come back to this topic because he hasn't really published much on that um in the last years and so for to have him come back 20 years later and, and write the conclusion to this book um was something i I was really excited about to have him um kind of talking about it all now reflecting 20 years later all of the work that has come out all the work that's in this book
0: yeah that concluding chapter i think is a really um i i could see assigning I, i could see assigning that chapter um pretty broadly just because it does such a great job of of explaining some of what he was trying to do and then also what he sees you all as doing differently from him Uh, so i wonder if if kind of moving in that direction you could talk a little bit about in in your book you talk about uh before Beck, and then even after uh there was only kind of limited connection between histories of diplomacy and histories of sport so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you thought that was true and what you hope to, to do by bringing these two um, historiographic fields together.
1: Sure. Well, I think one of the challenges, and it's still a challenge a lot of us working on um, any type of sport and diplomacy is, is um, the access to archives, um, because every country has different rules as to how long, especially their um, national federal records are kept closed. You know, for some countries, it might only be twenty-five or thirty years, and others, it's it's more on the forty or fifty years. And with the use of sport within diplomacy, um, it does have a long history. um, As and as we show with soccer in this book, but so much of it has happened in um, the second half of the twentieth century and more recently. And so, so many of those government materials are going to still be closed or. You know, if there's a backlog in in declassifying um, material, and so it is a bit challenging, or has been challenging in the past, to to get that material um, to really bring together the the diplomatic documents from every country's foreign ministry, along with the relevant documents from sport organizations or individuals involved in these kinds of efforts, and so I think that's kind of been one of one of the reasons why the idea of sport and diplomacy as an area of academic and historic um, historical research has been a bit more recent, um, because obviously, sport has been used in diplomacy for decades, uh, really, you know, a solid century by now. Um, And so it's, it's really our access to be able to have those documents to tell those stories that has taken us a bit longer to get them and to be able to publish them. But there are a lot of scholars who are working on these topics. And I think um, a lot of the research has come out as journal articles or book chapters. Um, And it might be a chapter in a book that's not on sport um, or um, is on some other elements. You know, it might be on a country, it might be on diplomacy. Um, And so there's we're starting to get a, a greater mass of of academic research and publications um but they're not always monographs and you know i think some of the edited books that have come out um have really helped bring a lot of different ideas together and, and i hope that the books that i've edited on sport and diplomacy um and others too also spurs on additional research and can really drive those those larger projects that that um fill up an entire monograph
0: yeah i mean uh, in, in some ways your your um I mean, you're giving a lot of credit to Beck, but in some ways you're kind of a leading force in, in thinking through some of these questions yourself. And, and I, would, um, I would say particularly well-cited as well, working where you work and also um, being affiliated um, with, with um, the journals that you're affiliated with to see this this story unfold um, in, in the rich way that it, it has. Um, in, in good part, thanks to your work, um, as well as the work of other people I would, I would emphasize for readers, um, this book does kind of do a great job of covering, uh, as Heather was saying, the, the geographic spread. But one of the things I found most interesting about it was actually the way in which, um, so many of the, the people within it, um, were maybe what we might call inadvertent ambassadors or kind of ugly ambassadors. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about when you all were putting together the project, how did you conceive of who could be a diplomat? Who could um, engage
1: in diplomacy? So I actually think that you know we're pretty open to who was the in, who was engaging in the the um, diplomacy through through soccer. Um, I think the initial thought really was just making sure that the book had. The geographical spread—you know—that it wasn't a book dominated by Europe and Latin America, and like no one else. Um, and letting each scholar themselves talk about what was, you know, who were the 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 diplomatic actors for, you know, their own part of of their area of research. Um, and I think what kind of came out of that just naturally was how many different you know, historical diplomatic actors there were, be it the athletes, be it the foreign ministries, be it the national, um, you know, governing bodies for, for soccer, be it the continental um, governing bodies or even FIFA. Um, and so I think it just kind of naturally came about that it was just so many people being involved. And some of the actors, you know, we, we saw... Maybe coming into a few different um, chapters or, you know, because they were just involved for so long, or if not necessarily an individual, but, um, you know, FIFA obviously shows up in quite a few places or UEFA. So um, just in that sense, it, it, there was no pushing of that or encouraging the authors from that standpoint um, at the first, but it just kind of naturally came about that way.
0: Yeah, I think um, I won't. I'm not trying to quiz you on it or anything, but um, one of the chapters I like the most in, in terms of just thinking about maybe different kinds of diplomats was the chapter on Brazil um, that uh, Euclides de Freiras Couto and Alan uh, Valente uh, wrote. It almost had the idea of Brazilianness as an ambassador itself. Um, I thought that was really um, interesting
1: absolutely and and you know and and for a topic that is is so recent, I mean you know I think when we started the book the the Brazil World Cup was the most recent world cup, you know, and uh you know, and that's gonna be one of those chapters obviously there's we're not gonna have the official diplomatic documents for decades still um, but to still include um you know the work on Brazil because it is such an important chapter and and um, or a country in in soccer and, and this way of thinking about absolutely thinking about Brazil Brazilianness and how that factored into how the country was was acting or the government was was acting um, absolutely yeah
0: I, thought, I have a lot of kind of more general broad questions I want to ask. Uh, about things like whether winning's an important thing and in international diplomacy and wh- how small countries can maybe leverage these things uh, differently, but it might be useful to kind of move through some of the chapters. and And um, I talked to Heather beforehand, and it's unfair of me to quiz her on all the chapters, so I'm not I'm not trying to do that. Um, but I, I I want to point out for readers um Heather's been emphasizing it has broad geographic spread and it really does Um, but there are chapters on France during the third Republic on uh sport during Francoism in Spain on American and Icelandic football exchanges on um the 62 World Cup in Chile uh Heather's work on UEFA and uh East German football uh Australia and Vietnam uh, so there there's a huge range of, of chapters uh so for people who might be interested only or, or primarily interested in in for example anti-apartheid movements or apartheid movements there's there's uh work here for you as well but i asked uh, heather um uh to 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 think kind of about a few of the chapters and think um, and, and, and we could discuss them. And, and one of the chapters that was particularly interesting to me was Paul Dietschy's work, uh, because it does one thing in, in the book that I think was important for you all, which is it stretches it into the period before the, the um, Second World War. So I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit, Heather, about where you see the origins of sports diplomacy. Where does it first uh, emerge in, in modern terms? And why maybe it comes up when it does?
1: <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, I'm not sure I'm going right. to venture out on the limb and set, you know pinpoint an, an actual origins. Um, but what I think is so great um, and what um, about uh, Paul DiChi's chapter and, and uh, it's so important and, and wonderful in the book is and in, in general about um, not just soccer diplomacy but sport diplomacy as a whole is that. We have largely thought of this as a post-1945 concept you know, with largely the 36 Nazi Olympics as the one big exception. Um, and, and what I think in, is so impressive about, about Paul Dicci's chapter is that he shows from a democratic country before the Second World War how there was a conscious decision by the government to use soccer as part of its diplomatic effort. And I think where this is in contrast to Peter Beck scoring for Britain, where it was kind of like soccer was used within diplomacy for Britain in the first half of the 20th century, but not really by the foreign office. It wasn't like the foreign office set out to say like, we are going to consciously use this. It was kind of like it, Happened, and they were happy when it worked in their favor. Um, but D.C.'s chapter just shows a, you know, an, and from a democratic country, um, you know, consciously using soccer and in, in these efforts to put forward um, the ideas of the the French Third Republic and um, you know their own diplomatic aims for for the country. Um, and so that's one of the things I think is is just so impressive. You know, in contrast. When you think about the the thirty six Olympics, you know those were awarded to democratic um, the democratic German state Weimar Germany. You know, and, and at first Hitler wasn't even interested in the games. Only later did he, when he realized what a propaganda value would it be, then he put the whole effort of the state behind it. Um, but you know, this is just so different um, with what France was doing in that interwar period. And you know, it was a bit of a, a slow start. It wasn't. Necessarily, as um, you know, gung-ho not everyone might you know didn't have all the the resources behind it in the way that um, you'll see, or even you know the the Brazil chapter, you know, the way that the entire Brazilian government was behind getting the World Cup in twenty fourteen. You know, it it wasn't that level of resources back in um, the the first half of the the century, but just um, you know, I think that's a really important part because it it's not often that we see work on sport and diplomacy before 1945 or before the Second World War, um, because it often wasn't seen. The the mantra of of sport and politics being separate was still so much more widely promoted. I mean, it's still said today, but we all know that's a giant myth. Um, And so we see less of governments really taking that that direct action with respect to sport early on in the 20th century. Um, And so I think, you know, he's done a great job of showing a country that did specifically use soccer as part of its diplomatic efforts.
0: I, I, as a French historian, and as a French sports historian of that period, I really loved um, uh, DG's chapter. Uh, I learned a lot. And I think um, that's one of the things that that is valuable about this work is that it just illuminates kind of um, some of these areas of sports diplomacy that maybe haven't gotten enough attention, especially this pre 1945 period for for me in this chapter, in particular, Uh, but that's not everyone's interest. Heather, can you tell me a little bit more about your chapter and, and what you were doing in that chapter?
1: Sure. So my chapter um focuses on a few East German football games um in the first few years of the nineteen sixties. Um one against or at a tournament in Portugal, um, and then a couple games um in the Netherlands. And you know, these were on the whole, well, one of the the one of the matches were, you know, UEFA junior tournaments. I mean tournaments that are rarely making the news, you know, um, it might be a one sentence story, um, and then a score, like not even a full on box score. And then also the qualification for the world cup, which is a little bit more significant than the qualification for the Olympics and um, the 64 Olympic tournament. And, um, you know, showing how for East Germany in their effort to gain recognition through a sport, which was you know, a massive part of the East German um, government's just diplomatic strategy or strategy to gain recognition at all internationally um, throughout the 50s and 60s through sport and how NATO responded to that. Because, you know, again, these some of these minor games, a UEFA junior tournament was something that the highest level of diplomats within all of these countries and at NATO headquarters, um, which at the time were still in Paris; they hadn't yet moved to Brussels. Um, you know, and, and these diplomats were all talking about these these tournaments and um, whether the East German team should be allowed to travel to Portugal and the Netherlands and and the nuances of it and um, the public backlash of not allowing the East German team in some of these instances to be able to travel, um, and so really showing how you know it wasn't just soccer being used within diplomatic um, purposes or within diplomacy, um, just as kind of a a bilateral level or one country's efforts. But I mean, yes, this was East Germany's efforts. But then there was this massive response from, you know, a multi-country military organization that obviously is talking about things beyond military, because they're talking about soccer tournaments.
0: Yeah, I, I, I have heard you talk about this before, and I, I really enjoyed this chapter. Why did why did NATO care about soccer anyway? I mean, it seems so kind of out of left field, um, to use a bad sports metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: and it wasn't just soccer. I mean, um, all the sports I talked about, you know, is any of East Germany's attempts, to gain recognition through sport was something that, um, NATO was, was trying to counter. Um, and, and really it was any and every single sport. Um, but for them, it was because of the, um, agreement that, uh, NATO made when the federal Republic joined the organization, um, and saying that they would not recognize the, the communist German state, um, because that was, the West German, or the Federal Republic of Germany's um, policy, it was called the Hallstein Doctrine of not recognizing this other German state. You know, claiming it was illegitimate, um, didn't have a democratically elected government, and so you know, protecting the West, protecting their NATO member of the Federal Republic of Germany, um, meant countering these efforts um, by East Germany, and it it was a sense that the the security of the West could ultimately be threatened by this other German state or, you know, the communist bloc as, as a whole. Um, and so they really did consider all sorts of issues um, which, you know, are so far removed from the military, you know, but they ultimately kind of came back and, and mattered. Um, the entity within NATO that was always discussing sport was the um, Political Advisors Committee. Um, and so it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't each country's military delegate um, or, you know, highest military representative, um, but their political representative who was. And because all of those issues did still, you know, politics and diplomacy and, and the military do have to work with each other. They they go not necessarily hand in hand, but they work closely with each other. Um and so all of those political advisors, you know, report back to their their foreign ministry in you know their capital city and in their countries. And so, um, it very much was this this concept, this idea that NATO talked about actually quite frequently throughout um, the late 50s and especially the the 1960s
0: and uh, uh, of course um all the nato members totally agreed with this policy right
1: <laughs> it was definitely um one of the more contested ones um particularly when it was going to be a country that was hosting you know they they kept trying to put this this national interest category for for some of them definitely for the soccer games you know for the Netherlands for Portugal, you know, soccer is a huge sport in these countries um, and they are going to want to have their tournaments run. Well, they want to have everyone there. Um, You know, they want to be the focus of attention for other countries. um, You know, for Norway, it was the skiing events, especially the ski jumping events, you know, claiming national interest for that. Um, And I, I do sometimes wonder when I read these documents, um, you know, the each, each, uh, country's political advisors committee, their reports back, you know, their long telegrams and letters back to their foreign ministries. I do sometimes wonder how much eye rolling there initially was during some of these meetings, because I think sometimes <laughs> with some of these arguments, you just wonder, like, I bet they they must have been, you know, um, and and yet it was also this frustration of if a country did have its event disrupted because East Germany wasn't going to be allowed to participate and especially if the rest of the communist bloc withdrew their teams as well you know this idea of disrupting the west which is how the the communist bloc really um, saw these these actions these collective actions and um, you know and then it, it became a matter of bad you know it it was bad pr it looked bad on on the the host country and really its its government and its foreign policies and so um there was a sense of like, well, we don't want this to happen to us. We want to be the exception. But then the countries who it did happen to, um, you know, and and did have their events disrupted um, were the ones who then were like, okay, you all, the rest of the NATO better, better also maintain this policy. You know, you shouldn't get some exception that I didn't get. Um, And so there really had to be this, this balance. And um, yeah, they, they did talk about sport way more than you would think they would have.
0: Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, I, like I say, I heard you talk about this before, but rereading um, this, this chapter, I think, was really uh, illuminating, and I think it helps to show the ways in which sports can help shape and reshape NATO and, and the important role that smaller countries were playing in these discussions. A, a lot of the chapters in, in this um, book uh, have to do with small countries, it, it was that a kind of aim of the project?
1: and um, you know, I think as, as the book started to take shape, it became an element that was actually really exciting. Um, and I think important for thinking about sport diplomacy and especially soccer diplomacy, you know, that it's not just France, England, Spain, Brazil, Argentina, um, you know, the countries you think of as your big soccer powerhouses. Um, but that, you know, sport is used by so many countries around the world, and especially soccer, because it is the most popular sport in the world. And, you know, the desire to try to get to the World Cup, and if a country can finally get there, or the you know, even through the qualification process of getting to the World Cup. It's it's so important in so many countries and to have those that come out in quite a few of these chapters and having chapters on countries that we don't normally think of with soccer because there's other codes of football that are more popular in those countries. Um, you know, I think the US and, and Australia are probably the two biggest ones on on that front. Um, maybe even a bit with South Africa. Um, but then also smaller countries, um, you know, Trinidad and Tobago. and you know when we started this book, Iceland hadn't had its great euro run. Um, and so then that became really exciting that Iceland was in this book. Um, so it made it seem even more timely. But I think you know, the fact that so many countries have, have used soccer um, and and had soccer be part of its diplomatic efforts um, is one of the um, big important points that's come out of the book and as it was taking shape and and wanted to be an aspect that we want I wanted to highlight um, you know and and also Sarah Snyder in her chapter and and Peter Beck in his conclusion kind of also emphasizing that that point as well you know just how broadly soccer is. Used and is part of diplomatic efforts and diplomacy.
0: Yeah, Heather is alluding to um, a couple chapters here that I, both of which I thought were particularly interesting. George Kiusis's uh, chapter on American and Iceland football exchange, uh, at a, a US Icelandic um, uh, friendly uh, uh, a, home, a home, in a way friendly, uh, in 1955, 1956. Um, and and one of the things that's interesting about that particular exchange is is how bad the American team is. Uh, the The American team loses uh, seemingly all of their games, <laughs> uh, and and the Icelandic press is very je- generous in and, and not um, not ridiculing them too much. Uh, is it important in sports diplomacy for teams to win, or what's the what's the I mean, Because oftentimes I think that's a part of our stories when we're writing sports histories is is uh, the outcomes of games actually matter. And, and it's important um, that games are kind of we don't know what the outcome might be ahead of time. So there's this sense of real contingency. But a lot of times that, di- that this, your story was different here. So I'm wondering if you can talk about winning and losing and diplomacy.
1: Yeah, no. And, and I think that's um, an element that I guess we don't really think about as as a concept that it kind of sometimes is you know this country wins and it especially during the cold war it's the triumph of one side over the other democracy over communism or communism over democracy um and and so i think in in those kind of direct competition between countries who are competing in general um and i think that's when the idea of, of the outcome matters um but, you know, in this case, between Iceland and the U.S., you know, the U.S. had a, a clear result that they wanted, which was the ability to maintain that airbase in Iceland. You know, so I think in that sense, you know, maybe losing isn't the worst thing, um, <laughs> you know, and, and makes Iceland feel better so that they're more willing to maintain this um, you know, agreement with the United States to use the the airbase and within Iceland. Um, you know, and but I also think what's so fascinating is in in George's chapter is like the real disparity between the interest and approach because you know the U.S. doesn't re- bring you know a national team. You know who who the Icelandic team plays against when they come to the U.S. is a, really an assortment of. Random teams, in in many respect, you know, it's it's not an even treatment of what these visits mean to each each other, um, and and I think that kind of sense of uneven diplomacy or or uneven treatment within diplomacy is it's fascinating.
0: Um, the other chapter you were alluding to a little bit is Eric uh, Nielsen's chapter. Um, I won't name it because I try not to use one of the words that he uses in in the chapter. Not being an Australian. Uh, but it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a chapter about uh, the Socceroos' first kind of international triumph in 1967 in South Vietnam, in the midst of the Vietnam War. Um, for Australian listeners, this is a particularly interesting, uh, interesting work. Um, and one of the things that I think Eric tries to show in, is just how important um, non-state actors were. And so I wonder, you know, if, if we can circle back a little bit to that and thinking about that throughout the, the whole project, um, you know, how, in the story of this soccer diplomacy, how important were kind of national federations and their goals? So in other words, how much of this diplomatic effort is kind of incidental to to, to, to the efforts of organizations?
1: You know, I think... In- It'll depend within each, each context and, you know, not even just each country, but, you know, sometimes it'll be one instance versus another. Um, but I think the national governing bodies um, really do play a, a strong role, um, especially because they are the ones when it comes to the national team that, that have that oversight for it. So um, governments do increasingly engage with the national governing bodies, liaise with them. You know, make sure that they know what's expected of them while they're going to another country, particularly if it is a country that they have, that, you know, the two countries have fraught relations with or, um, you know, something along those lines. And, yeah, Eric's chapter is is fascinating. I mean, Australia sent its national team to Vietnam in the middle of the war. And, and <laughs> that's just shocking in and of itself. You know, and and um, you know, and, and he talks about the challenges of what documents are available and and memory because of, um, you know, Johnny Johnny Warren's um, memoirs, and and that is much in the way that I Australia um, remembers this tournament is through his own um, through Warren's book, um, but the sense of you know was this really something that. I mean, the Australian government really wanted, was this something more that just the Australian Soccer Federation wanted because Australia hadn't really done much thus far, you know, this, this real venture into international soccer. Um, and so, so yeah, it it becomes these, these difficult and, and inner, this interplay between the different groups and entities, be it the national governing bodies or the, the foreign ministries. Um, and, who's kind of playing the dominant role in, in one instance versus another.
0: I did love the, the way in which memory and evidence um, were central in this chapter. And I'll have to ask Eric about, it's funny because Eric also works at Macquarie, but I haven't talked to him about this chapter. Um, so I'll have to talk to him about that. But one of the other things I really liked about this chapter is, as you point out, um, you know, our what we know about it, we get... Um, a lot of that information from one person who wrote a memoir about the experience, wrote, um, about the experience. And it made me think about how states transform individual athletes then into these inadvertent diplomats. And I wondered if you thought, uh, throughout the book or maybe for in your own work. Um, to what extent athletes are acting as kind of political agents. I think that's a question we often ask ourselves, is whether they're kind of co-opted or how much they, they know.
1: Yeah, and and there's a lot of academics who have written on um, different athletes. Um, you know, I think the perhaps one of the um, largest groups that have had or... One of the groups that's had the the largest amount of academic, you know, historical research kind of done um, with respect to that is on the State Department's use of African American athletes during the Cold War, and especially to um, African countries. Um, in that sense of saying, you know, look, no, you know, race relations aren't so bad in the U.S., and trying to to minimize that by sending the great, um, the great African American athletes overseas, um. And so I think it's it is an instance where it, some athletes might be more willing and, and believing within the the diplomatic and political goals of their country. Others might be more young or more naive. Um, and so you know I think it's hard to say an overarching answer on that one way or another. And I think again it's one of those where each each instance you know needs to be evaluated um, on its own. But you know going back to that sense of, of Memory, or you know what we know based on what one athlete says, um, you know, and, and Eric talks about the challenges and the fact that you know those files list, um, relating to that trip are not available within the Australian archives. You know that people are not allowed to see them where they no longer exist. You know, and and that's, that's a challenge then because how how can we really truly figure everything out when we don't have all parts of the story? You know, having the athlete side, having the national governing body side, having the foreign ministry side, having the press, you know, putting all of those together is is how we really get the full story um, or the different parts of the story that, that may still always be a little bit different from each other. Um, but you get a greater understanding from having the multitude of, of sources. And when one side is and one element of those is, is completely missing, you know, and, and a different side is, is what is quite prominent, you know, with something like the memoir from the team captain and a prominent athlete um, that can kind of skew what the majority of people understand about an issue. um, You know, and that's where I guess our work as historians is really important to really bring in all the the sides for that, that greater understanding.
0: Yeah. I, I, in reading the book and I definitely, I definitely was curious um, and, and I'm, I'm learning from you about the process a little bit of how it was all put together, but, um, there's a lot in this book that is kind of unexpected. Um, it takes a story we've heard and, 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 in another way and, and reflects it through new light. In particular, I'm thinking of the chapter about apartheid sport, which takes the perspective of the failures of the apartheid government to use sports diplomacy more effectively. And often we hear the other side of that story. Uh, So I was, I guess I was wondering, you know, what are some, are there, are there particular um, ways in which when you were putting the book together, um, particular holes or particular things that you thought sport diplomacy, soccer diplomacy more particularly uh, could, could um, change the stories that we've been told about sports history or just about, I mean, history more generally?
1: I guess, yeah, you know, I, I do hope that this book and the variety of, of topics and, and countries included in it does make people think differently. Um, or or think more about the use of sport and particularly soccer um, within diplomacy and, and as diplomacy. Um, but absolutely, I think, you know, Chris Boltzmann's chapter on on South Africa, this concept of failed sport diplomacy um, was great. You know, it, it's in many ways kind of this, this whole different idea, this idea of, you know, we often talk about sport diplomacy or soccer diplomacy as being, you know, used to achieve a specific aim. And we often talk about when that happens. um, And here's, you know, it doesn't work in this instance. Um, And so, you know, it would be great if more people can also, you know, more scholars can look at other instances of of failed sports diplomacy. Um, And I think just kind of, you, the initial goal of getting chapters was to ensure the geographic spread. You know, I guess that's kind of the blunt way of looking at it. Um, And I was pretty open to what the chapters would talk about. Um, But as they all came in and reading them all, you know, the great part was even though they were all written by different scholars who were just writing their own chapter, the number of themes or ideas that arose in so many different ones um and while most chapters didn't actually talk about you know the the actual financial side of things you know in many ways that is what pushes some of the decisions that are being made or the actions that are being taken especially when it comes to hosting a sporting event um you know, it's, it's the PR that comes with it, you know, and that's why governments support their national governing bodies to, you know, want to host these kind of events, be it the World Cup, be it a UEFA tournament, be it a continental tournament. Um, but the money kind of drives some of those ideas as well and underlying it. Um, and so that was kind of one of those fascinating elements that came out of just seeing all the chapters together.
0: Yeah, I, I was, I've, I've um, recently had the opportunity to read a number of edited volumes, kind of cover to cover, which is something we don't always do enough of. Um, and I was just astounded by the diversity and just the high quality. I, I don't mean to disparage our colleagues, but sometimes you read edited volumes and you're like, oh, they're the two duds in the book. <laughs> 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 this does not have any duds. I will say each chapter um, was fascinating in its own right, and I I wish we had a lot of time to talk about all of the different ones. Especially, there's a few that are just um, in- interesting, kind of on their on their own. <laughs> especially the chapter on a certain Trinidad and And, uh, FIFA, FIFA uh, member.
1: And, you know, um, and I have to say with that chapter, that was one where, you know, he keeps coming into the, Jack Warner keeps coming into the news. And I kept thinking like, <laughs> oh my God, do, do you need to rewrite your chapter? Like we've just done page proofs. There's now, you know, his court cases again, like what is going on? And, you know, I guess that's, that's one of the challenges that many of us never think about with history is we're writing about things that happened so long ago. Um, but then when you do either, you know, I remember once with a a journal article and, you know, and, and I had actually talked about, um, step bladder being reelected, you know, in this article about corruption. And then between when I submitted it to the journal and when it, you know, got the decision, it was like, he now wasn't president. And, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to rewrite the entire intro. And he was a bit concerned on that with a little bit with the, the Trinidad and Tobago chapter, you know, every point it was like, do, do you need to update things? Like, is it still accurate now? Um, so yeah.
0: <laughs> I have to admit, I was reading that chapter. And I'm just reading aloud to, to my wife, like, can you
1: believe this is going on?
0: <laughs> I, you know so many of the details but then you read them in one place again and written so well you're like oh, this is some of this is just a little shocking i know yeah <laughs> now i could go on and on and I, I i will i will say um you know like i said every i think every chapter in this in this particular volume is is really a worthwhile contribution and really interesting um in its own right and i thank you for putting it all together um Heather, I know the kind of work that goes into this uh, this uh, enterprise. So I, I guess my last question for you is the last question I ask people generally. Um, and you can tell me if during COVID time, this is an unfair question. <laughs> uh, but what do we have to look forward to next? What are you currently working on that we'll be reading um, when it's out?
1: Um, sure. So I I was able, even during a pandemic, um, I have recently finished editing my monograph. So if you especially liked my chapter, I have an entire book on all of the um, NATO's dealings with the German question or the German problem in um, the 1960s, and especially as it pertained um, and intertwined with the entire bidding for the 1968 Olympics, uh, both the summer and winter bids, because obviously the games happened in '68, but the bids were in the beginning of the decade, which was, you know, really the height of the problems in the Cold War with Germany. You know, right after the Berlin Wall went up. So um, that I have where I talk about not only soccer, but truly every single sport that um, came to be an issue um, with respect to the East German athletes and the NATO states. Um, So that book, I hope, uh, should be out in late 2021 with the uh, University of Massachusetts Press. Um, And in the meantime, I have been working with uh, Sarah Tietzel from the University of Manitoba um, on uh, two special issues of the International Journal for the History of Sport um, on the Olympic Winter Games. And um, I will be having a um article on Calgary's failed 68 um bid which um for the 68 winter game um kind of one of those articles that comes out of just the massive amount of accumulation of documents for a monograph and then obviously not all of them will ever be used in the book um and being able to write some additional um pieces from some of that research so um really excited on these um, two special issues of the, on the Olympic winter games, because once again, you know, drawing on a number of of really great scholars working on a variety of topics and countries. And I guess I just really enjoy those opportunities of reading and bringing together, um, different, different people's work, um, is a lot of work editing different projects, but, um, I guess I'm just always really happy with the, the final product.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to both of these, um, both your book and the the, the uh, edited um, co- article collections. I, I'm anticipating that you're going to be dishing hard on Canada in both venues.
1: Um, uh, you know, Canada has an interesting role in in my monograph. Um, the article and the Winter Olympics will um, just actually focus on on. Um, some of the internal Canadian efforts uh, supporting Calgary's bid. So I think that one will be a a different focus uh, when it comes to Canada.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad and I'm glad to hear it. And I'm really looking forward to them. And um, I'll be anxious to see, see them both in print. Thank you very much for joining us, Heather.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful speaking with you today, Keith.
0: You've all been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I've been speaking today with Heather Dichter. Heather is an associate professor of sport history and sport management at De Montfort University and a member of the International Center for Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University. And uh, I'm Keith Rathbone coming to you live from Macquarie University. Thank you all very much for listening.